understand the big picture performance of EMS agencies across the United States as outlined in the 2022 ESO EMS Index. It's based on data from more than 2,000 agencies and departments across the country and represents 9.9 million EMS responses between January 1st, 2021 to December 31st, 2021. Now in its fifth year, the 2022 ESO EMS Index not only examines the performance, but makes comparisons to the previous year's data. Therefore, the best practices are informed by several years of data, as well as their practical, first-hand experience of seasoned medical professionals. Download the index today by visiting ESO.com. All right. Well, hello, world. This is Jonathan Feit, co-founder and chief executive of Beyond Lucid Technologies, coming at you with another uh, Facebook Live stream uh, for the Sacred Cows and Data Cubes podcast. Um, I am thrilled uh, to be joined by the recently retired Mike Touchstone, Chief Mike Touchstone. Um, I am going to ask uh, Mike to introduce himself for the two to three people in this industry who don't already know him. Uh, and don't already feel as I do about him, which is that this is a man of intense wisdom. Um, what, when I think about what I want to do when I grow up, uh, it's the ability to switch seamlessly between an eloquent discussion of education and policy and healthcare and bourbon and culinary arts and travel around the world. And so when I think Renaissance man, I think Mike Touchstone, uh, so, Mike, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, a couple minutes here on your background. We'll talk about what the topics are for today. Wow. Um, yeah, so I retired from the Philadelphia Fire Department EMS Division as uh, Deputy Chief of EMS Operations in September past, uh, hence having facial hair, which is prohibited by uh, policy in the fire department. Um, I served 32 and a half years there. Uh, prior to that, I was uh, a lieutenant and shift supervisor at a hospital-based uh, 911 respond, responding ALS service in Delaware County. And I started at a volunteer corps, uh, Narberth Ambulance, uh, in 1980. I got my paramedic certification in 1983. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it feels like yesterday. If you if you have that same time warp experience that I do, you remember some things like yesterday. Oh yeah, I still like have yesterday feels like a long time. Ago. What? I still have my Nancy Caroline second edition <laughs> textbook. Nice. So I mean, I've also done a lot of stuff outside. I taught uh, management of EMS at the National Fire Academy. Uh, I was president of the. Uh, National EMS Management Association back in uh, the middle 2000s. I uh, played with NEMSI because I was an instructor, uh, did a lot of stuff on their committee work. I've been involved in the Pennsylvania Emergency Health Services Council, uh, which is the advisory council here in Pennsylvania. I was regional director of the city of Philadelphia for the EMS office, uh, CQI officer, I was the director of the Philadelphia Fire Department EMS Training Institute. And uh, yeah, I like bourbon. I like to cook. I like gardening, you know, a lot of other stuff. 
So yeah, if that qualifies as a Renaissance man, I guess, yeah. I, I would say so. Like I said, I, I, I look at your career and I think hashtag life goals. So <clears throat> certainly take the compliment. It's meant as one. Um, but I also think given the topics that we want to talk about here, which you and I have had over years uh, in, in, in a setting prior to the existence of this podcast, uh, I, I thought there are, there are few people more and better equipped having seen the, the gamut of, of this industry's educational settings, uh, who understand its challenges, who understand its politics, which are enough to knock you sideways and potentially make the US Congress look like a happy-go-lucky playground. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just said that on record, right? Um, is I think we what I want to dig into is some of the practical and philosophical realities. There's just a lot of psychology that comes in our industries, uh, the hills that people die on, let's say. Uh, and and I think when it comes to education, both education per se, meaning what you might get in a school, and also education on the job, how do we as you and I have talked about in, again, in many settings, including through the Congress of Mobile Medical Professionals, which we'll talk a little bit more later, this, this archipelago theme of sharing knowledge between different places, right? That's a more practical aspect of education and training where what you're doing in Philly and what they're doing in Texas and what they're doing in Los Angeles and in rural spaces in between may have relevance to one another. Right. We have to I, I want to talk today about all of those things. How do we bridge the gaps? <laughs> because we are struggling as an industry with retention. We are struggling with recruitment. Right. We are struggling with a data driven practice, which requires people to learn how to do things differently. And you have been on the front and I'm going to show some things on my on my screen today. But this is a document, the, the, the cover page of a document that I always associate with you. Uh, I think one of our first in-depth conversations was about this concept, sort of what makes a leader. Um, but particularly when one looks at mobile medicine, and, and while there are differences, again, we've, we, we'll talk about it today, but we've talked about it before, the differences between fire and EMS in terms of the structure of the teams, right? How many people go out on a call? for example. And now with community paramedicine, we're, we're sort of slimming down teams even more, but sometimes we're com uh, combining with police or other social resources, right? So, so there's a reconfiguration of what it means to be a leader. I think we want to talk about a little bit of all of that. Uh, because they Can I, throw in, I want to throw down a couple of challenges, right? Go ahead. So first, how we refer to what it is that we do is critically important. The labels and the nomenclature used to describe what we do. And there have been arguments about calling what we do paramedicine that have made it to the federal level. And we haven't really made any progress. But one of the things I haven't, I think take umbrage with perhaps is, is the fact of calling what we do an industry. Okay. And industrial processes have a certain connotation of workers making products. And if anything, if we're any kind of industry at all, 
we're a healthcare industry and a uh, more along the lines of um, hospitality. We're, we provide service, we don't make stuff. And, and the drive towards professionalization, I think has a lot to do with moving away from this idea of an industrial concept because you only need training to be successful as a worker in a factory, right? You only need your basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, and if we want to proceed past being simple technicians, this is where we get into this idea of what's a profession and what's professional, not the same thing. And are we an industry or are we a profession, uh, aspiring profession? <coughs> Allergies are brutal. Uh, the other thing is when you talk about data. Data in and of itself is of very little use until it's been analyzed. And from that data, you develop actionable intelligence. Data is useless without analysis. So we often talk about data, but we really don't talk much about how to use it and how to turn it into intelligence and how to make the outcomes of the study of the data actionable. So we, we live in a world of dichotomies. Many of them are false dichotomies. Uh, you talked about training a lot, the training and education dichotomy. Well, it's not really a dichotomy. You need them both, right? Uh, teacher versus taught. Um, well, data versus intelligence. Industry versus profession. Um, the macro and the micro, the strategic and the tactical. Uh, we're, we're working in a very complex environment with a lot of things that are not properly or very well understood and uh, things are not clearly defined. So one of the things as I will segue from discussing those pieces is what's the role of education? So uh, in the process of becoming better able to understand, to argue, to have a dialogue, to participate in the dialectic or uh, other aspects of the things that we need to do. Yeah, there you go. So go ahead and follow up on that because that's an important foundation of- uh, but, Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think I'd like you to dig into that. I mean, clearly I was just taking notes. There's clearly, clearly quite a bit to unpack there. What I have on screen here for, for all watching is a definition uh, from an article through a, a, a website called Masterclass, which they're not paying me to say this, but I absolutely am obsessed with their service. So to the degree that anyone hasn't heard of or tried Masterclass, uh, it's just fascinating to learn from people uh, that you would otherwise not get to learn from, perhaps. Um, and when I was coming up, uh, and, and let me let me preface by saying that my bias with respect to education per se is informed by the fact that I only have three degrees um, and a couple of other certificates and whatnot along the way, graduate certificates. Um, I tend to think that in our practice, which I think is, I think it's an interesting point that you point out profession versus industry uh, makes me wonder, for example, where I fit, right? I'm not a medic, I'm not a firefighter. I'm a, I'm a data guy kind of pervading this practice kind of on the periphery. So yeah, it's probably worth coming back to kind of if we are a profession, then where do the affiliates 
who are not directly part of that profession uh, sit. And I think that's, that's worth a, a, perhaps a discussion here. But when I was coming up in school, one of the things that I remember most uh, fundamentally learning is the ancient Greek view of education as an end unto itself. There was an association between education and happiness, uh, which is an interesting way of looking at things. I think um, the kind of the, the the concept of homework doesn't really fit into that. <laughs> but well, the other yeah. thing about it's not just about happiness, but how you can contribute to society. How well, happiness was not described the same way. So happiness yeah. was it wasn't a matter of, of feeling smiley. It was the, the association of happiness it was more about satisfaction. What in the psychology world we might call uh, self-actualization, right? So are you, as you can see- Maslow's hierarchy. I'm sorry? Maslow's hierarchy. Indeed, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The pinnacle of that being the self-actualization. And it was really an association between being able to contribute and that that the idea of being a positive contributing member of society was a good thing. And in order to do that, you needed to be able to participate, to sit at the table, to engage in conversation. And so education was all about that. And you kind of see it here summarized really in a way that I think we, we probably nowadays are putting under the revised acronym of STEAM education, science, technology, education, arts, and mathematics. <laughs> um, but, but what's really so interesting there is on the one hand, the clear engineering orientation of that, thankfully the arts being thrown in because it does enrich life in a significant way to be able to have a conversation that's not just about equations, but the idea that if you can't communicate what you are doing and why it matters and why what you did mattered, then you know a tree fell in the forest. Now, I think I know that one of the uh, points that you have a lot to say about, so I'm going to tee this up for you, is Liz Angeli's article that she uh, uh, spearheaded with a number of extraordinary colleagues uh, about the question of whether, A, folks are able to communicate to the degree that is appropriate and necessary in this industry, and B, do people think they are better communicators than they in fact are? Right. And and this sense of as you go along and I saw Tom Boothelay had something out on social media today, saw, who recently retired from Hilton Head Fire, had something out uh, uh, circulating around the self-knowledge that comes over the course of a career and how by the end of a career, you realize how little you actually do relative to how you know, how you might, may have felt when you just came out of your training program and you were green, but you thought you were a hotshot. Uh, and I think those jive with some of Liz's findings. So why don't you speak a little bit to that in terms of the self-awareness bit? Let me, let me start with this idea of the Greek process. And, and in there, you'll notice a word, uh, pedagogical. And that is relevant to the teaching of children in a teacher-taught mode. Um, most of, you know, that's like, elementary school and high school. When you start dealing with adults, which is what we often are dealing with, uh, you move to a different style of education called andragogy, whereby it's, 
you don't have a passive audience. You have a bunch of grownups with experience who need to know why I have to learn this. So that goes very much to the idea, why should I get a degree? I'm not going to get paid more. Well, we can get into the whole, is it about pay or is it about what, why, how that argument fits? I would argue in my own career, um, while I was nickel and diming my education to my bachelor's degree, <clears throat> I was promoted lieutenant, captain, battalion chief, and division chief. Uh, and I would attribute my success in part to the fact that I was studying this stuff and writing about it and reading about it all the time. Um, so I was able, as you said, to communicate because what we did in class was communicate via writing. Um, the things that were written about in uh, Liz's article and the, the premise, let me give just a little brief background and you can bounce back to Andragogy uh, now and then I'll come back to the article because it's important. Well, okay. <clears throat> So it's a legit scientific study right. from the perspective of the fact that it was uh, reviewed by a uh, review board at a university. They collected data via a survey. And uh, this particular article basically says, or the findings were that uh, providers don't feel prepared. They don't feel prepared in many of the dimensions of the work that we do. Now they based the topic areas on a position paper that was put out in uh, pre-hospital emergency care yep. about, uh, it was titled EMS curriculum should educate beyond a technical scope of practice, position statement and uh, resource document. Now, inter interestingly enough, only one of the people of the authors is a medic the rest are, are uh, DO, MD, EDD, and so forth. But they identified <coughs> several areas that needed to be addressed, public health and epidemiology, social determinants of health, uh, social equity and bias, mental and behavioral health, uh, culture of safety and human factors science, uh, quality improvement, healthcare business and finance leadership, and change management, evidence-based practice, and effective communication skills. Now, when you go down that list, our current guidelines that direct all of the paramedic programs that are certifying or preparing people for certification uh, don't include any of those things. It's all driven by clinical skills and knowledge. Uh, you'll hear discussions of effective domain amongst educators. That's about values, uh, attitudes. That's not part of the curriculum either. And that's been discussed literally for decades. Why do we have this gap in our preparation of practitioners where attitude and values are critically important? And that comes to play when you have practitioners who generate complaints, not about their clinical care, but about their attitude their tone of voice, their posture. Bedside manner. And, and bed, well, it's all about bedside manner. Uh, so the, the article that Liz is the lead author on addressed those 
areas. And basically, um, most of the people who responded to a high level, two thirds felt moderately, slightly, or not at all prepared across those 13 areas by their initial education. And part of what you said earlier, the more well-educated the providers, the more they realized how poorly they were prepared. So well, and, the more and they I, knew, the less they real, realized they were provided in the beginning. Well, and, and that's actually where I think, again, this is, hopefully this is as controversial as it should be. Uh, and if I haven't gender, you know, if I haven't kicked the hornet's nest in the 24 hour period, I got, I'm, I'm slacking. So I got to get on that. Period. <laughs> uh, but, but I, again, I, I have, you know, especially in a time when we are increasingly data driven <laughs> for information driven and, and pure data numbers driven in, in this industry. Right. I, I am not a medic. I am not a firefighter. I am a data geek. <laughs> And that's a topic about which I'm competent to discuss, right? But I also have spent a good deal of time in school. And I find it often ironic that the many of the most uh, vocal proponents, advocates, table bangers, whatever you want to call it, for needing folks to go get degrees, for example, are either not very formally educated, which is interesting, um, or are formally educated and have other reasons to feel as though they, if, if but they had this other thing, they would have advanced to some other place. And it almost becomes an overcompensation conversation because the question of whether you obtained a degree or two or three is often itself a red herring. Um, the right. association of, now I do buy, and I think this is very apropos of things, that getting a degree can be a demonstration of commitment, right? That's for sure. And if you add a demonstration of a body of work, right? That you've done something. Now I'm gonna say this, it doesn't make you smarter. Agreed. And it doesn't it get you paid you, more either. Which well, is it can get you paid about. more. Can, not necessarily. Right. Depending upon what you want. It's, it, exactly. The reason and the rationale for getting it. And see, I would separate. A degree is just the marker that you've been educated. Right? It's, right. It, it just shows that you've written, you've read, you've, you've done some critical thinking, you've had some arguments. And it, it represents a breadth and depth of knowledge that you would have a hard time getting any other way. So making, and, and most of the arguments against education in EMS are not against education per se, they're against requiring a degree. And I would say that, you know, a lot of the arguments are both straw man arguments based on unsupported assertions, but it's, it's almost irrelevant. Uh, you know, we don't, we have some science that says that a better educated practitioner is going to provide better care. Uh, they try and say there isn't, but I would argue there is. And on, a, on its face, a better educated person has potentially a better foundation upon which to build practice. So 
Yes, this is a lot of times a circular argument. A lot of times there are dichotomies and false dichotomies. There's fallacies. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit one of the topics that I am passionate about. And that is the fact that this is exceptionally complex. So you get into this idea of complexity and problems that are insoluble. Um, wicked problems is the term that was developed in the 70s uh, in public policy. And anybody who's out there that's listening to this that wants to get an idea as to why we're not making progress and why we're not solving problems, take a look at some articles or Google wicked problems and read some of the stuff. Because we, have, we haven't articulated what the problems are properly. So let's, let's say that one of the biggest problems that's a perennial discussion is recruitment and retention. Okay, so first off, right out of the box, those are not the same problem. Recruitment and retention are two separate things. Secondly, and let's be sure we, we, we're going to put a pin in the rotational training bit that we're going to talk about and define. Right. So when we talked about this at a pinnacle conference in an open conversation about the recruitment and retention issue and to, to start thinking about, well, why do we have or why do we perceive a problem of recruitment and retention and how do we solve the problem? We came to the understanding that the problem, one of the biggest components of the problem is an educational problem. People don't understand A, what they're getting into. We don't tell them the truth about what EMS is. We prepare them only to do certain aspects of the job. And you know, when, when you can hold this position as a high school graduate or a GED holder uh, and expect if you get a degree to get more money, that's not going to happen. But I can, I can tell you that you're also not going to get more money uh, if you don't. <laughs> and the chances of making progress are improved when you have an education. When you go up, as, if you want to get a better job and you're competing against somebody or you're competing for a promotion, if you're more well prepared and you can argue your point, and you can convince people that you know what you're talking about and can do what you say you're doing, you're going to get promoted. And as I said earlier, I was promoted because I did that every day for months and years. Uh, and I could talk about stuff that other guys that hadn't had that experience couldn't talk about. If all you knew or all you know is the department you're in or the environment, the narrowly focused environment that you live in, uh, you're, you're not going to do well. Uh, and it goes to that sort of renaissance approach. We very often are only informed by ourselves. And we need to look to other disciplines. And that also goes to the, the Greek approach. It's not uni-dimensional. It's literature. It's arts. It's physical activity, you know, wrestling or running or, you know, physical activities. Uh, we don't do enough of that. We don't take information about similar situations that other disciplines have solved and incorporate it into our own progress towards professionalization. Now, I don't know if anybody, you know, what people's thoughts are about making paramedicine a profession, 
But uh, you want to get more money, look at what they've done in other English speaking countries where degrees have become mandatory. Well, not so much, they didn't say they're mandatory, but that's the only way you get to be a paramedic is you go to paramedic school at a university. Well, uh, let, me, let, me, let me throw a hitch in there a little bit. Yeah, our, our, on the one hand, I think uh, the American education system and versus, for example, Commonwealth country education system it is is probably we can have you can have a college course all about that in and of itself. Right? Sure. And, and the healthcare and, systems are different too. Indeed. So I mean, it, it's a bit of an apples and oranges thing. Speaking of straw man arguments, I always find it, it you know interesting when folks look to Canada, UK, Australia, Ireland, etc. And and well, there's so many apples to oranges there that it, it's very difficult where you're looking, for example, a nationalized health system where you don't have a, a clear separation between high school and college, right? And it, when people look to Israel, where you're gonna have military experience in between, uh, which does a lot for teaching you about the world. Uh, so, and others like uh, Chief John Deckers of the Westwood Fire Department at one point, I mean, I interviewed him, talked about how great it has been to hire people in his department who had a different career before they joined the fire service, right? Because they brought that life experience. But I, I think to your point about the, the, the education bits and the value of having something that shows that commitment and breadth of experience, I think one of the challenges I've often had, and I, I wish, I hope, maybe a takeaway, maybe it's in the comments. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see if, if Jeff brings us questions at the end. But I think one of the, the, the missing pieces of this that would do it for me is if folks would define what degree or education scope should be included. Because now this is why I, I punched in there, because you mentioned about a, a degree in paramedicine. Right? But one of the most important trends that I think we're seeing in healthcare in general, which includes in mobile medicine, <laughs> is the recognition of the social determinants of health, right? And so I have found it unendingly problematic when folks talk about either getting a degree in a, in a practical subject, uh, I think, and I don't wanna call it, well, it, whether it's paramedicine or fire science or whatever it is, those are practical subjects as I would define them, right? As opposed to, is it more important, or, or math, by the way, or statistics, or any of the things that, that the business, et cetera, is it more important to have a degree in psychology, in sociology, right? in the ability to relate to your patient, as opposed to understanding how the parts connect inside the patient? And I don't think they're separate. I think they're combined. But are we negating the value of one by not defining the range of applicable intellectual traits that someone needs to have in this industry? I would suggest that if there was a degree program devised, that there would be, as in, our, in many programs, core competencies that need to be included. Things like ethics, things like leadership and management. Uh, I, I can't remember all of the ones, but you can you can create a core of five or six, uh, you know, some statistics. Well, they're very close, but that's not broad enough. That's very focused into what uh, supervising, managing, 
an executive EMS officer needs to know. Let's, let's push on that a little bit, because honestly- well, let, me get, let me just get to what I was getting to there. Because there are things, areas of study that could be included as threads of an educational process to reach a degree. You could have a generalist in EMS, you could have somebody who focuses on education. Yeah. You could have somebody who focuses on quality improvement. You could have somebody who focuses on clinical stuff. Yeah. You could have somebody who focuses on research that builds a curriculum, a personal curriculum around a core set of competencies that you need to be effective as a practitioner. So that, uh, you know, and we do need to look towards a much broader range of influences, psychology, sociology, uh, you know, genetics, pathophysiology, all the medical ologies. We don't get into, and the, the, the real underlying difficulty is in the amount of time it takes to create a trained technician to kick them out onto an ambulance and set them up to be uncomfortable and unprepared is, is really, in my opinion, an unethical approach, not only for the practitioner, but for the patient. And one of the things we lose in all, on many of these conversations is where does the public fit? Now you go back to our Greek idea that you're a contributing member of society. What is it that you're contributing to society uh, when you come out of paramedic school? I mean, you're gonna to respond to emergencies, not so much. That's what we tell them. You're gonna to respond to people's requests for help, most of which are not an emergent medical or traumatic injury, a problem like that. So you wanna push on the seven pillars? I mean, I was well, one of the people uh, engaged in doing that, although I can't take credit for making it happen. That goes to uh, Ryan Greenberg. And there was a lot of foundation work. If you go to, you can find this document online. That's how um, I found it. <laughs> yeah, and it's and 95 a, pages long. This is the cover page. Right. But the, the reason I'm suggesting the push on it is I, I think what, you, what you've said is, is fascinating in ways that are only now emerging, I think. <laughs> so for example, again, when I think about the, the flavors of mobile medicine that are emerging, Right, community paramedicine slash mobile integrated health slash whatever else we want to call it this week. Right, when we think about pediatrics, right? I mean, I, I have a specific professional focus in, in my work around pediatrics with special health needs, so children with medical complexity. And would it be interesting? I mean, how one structures that into formal training, I think, is almost a separate question. But how interesting it would be to see a recruitment poster, right? A, a LinkedIn ad, a, a Indeed posting, whatever it is, that says, we know that in our community, we have children with underlying severe disease, right? We have children with sickle cell. We have children with uh, 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 lymphomas and other forms of cancer. We have children with, uh, uh, you know, a variety of epilepsy and autism and uh, muscular dystrophy. You know, well, there's all kinds of chronic illnesses plus right. the other stuff that comes up that happens to kids. But imagine, imagine if we said, we are looking for somebody who has, understands how to 
intubate and medicate and all those things, the, the ologies, as you put it, but also who has a concentration somewhere in their experience, life or training, with young kids, right? And, okay. and we're going to specialize it. Have you ever seen something like that that says, we need you to have the sensibility, not just the training. We need you to understand how to relate to the older folks, the, the, the bilingual, the folks who don't speak English, the folk, folks who can't speak because they're too young. The hearing impaired. Sure. Look, I'm a person with disability. I'm a twitchy guy. I will tell you, like, if, if for all those in the world, if you don't already know, A, I have Tourette syndrome. B, if you're, my screen looks twitchy, it's me, not you, I promise. Right. So to do not adjust your set. Right. So it, it, I have been on the receiving end of being thrown against a wall because a peace officer thought that I was on substances because I'm a twitchy guy. Right. The, the context being severed, like, we, we're starting to talk about relating to members of the of the the polis, right? When you talk about the 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 community in the Greek fashion and the politics, understanding political science, understanding when we we people get upset about the question of do we call the thing excited delirium or not? Why is that important to the communities that are touched? And do we train people in this industry to engage sufficiently? Well, that no. Look, first of all, it's not training. Training would be how you throw the guy up against the wall. The educational component is how you decide whether or not to do it. And we don't talk about it. We talk okay. about how, how, do we get the needle, right? how do we get to that point? Well, look, it begins when you talk about like a pediatric specialist, before you can have a specialist, you have to have somebody who's competent generalist. They got to know the foundational theories, concepts, principles, structures, as to how to do the foundation job, the basic job of being a paramedic, uh, an out-of-hospital medical provider. Uh, we don't have a strong foundation yet before you can build off into uh, you know, somebody who's a mental health professional or that, and, and we don't work very much with them, right? Who, who has integrated mental health professionals into, and it's coming, SEPTA's doing it here in Philadelphia, we have a uh, opioid uh, special response unit that has social workers and mental health professionals, but it's one unit in the city. And we have to get the 300,000 people taken care of before we worry about the 0.102%. You know, that's it. So again, this is an interesting point. So I just had a conversation a few, literally about 30 minutes before we started this discussion with some folks, Jeff will attest to this because I pitched him a, another podcast all about it. Um, the conversation was with folks from the United States Fire Administration in FEMA. USFA, yeah. USA, right? So I'm assuming not everybody knows the acronyms, but let's go with US. Yes, so USFA. Who uh, and has it's not a new USA. director, by the way. What was that? Who has a new director, by the way. And yeah. something you want to discuss? What? Is it something you want to talk about with respect to? No, I'm just saying the, the, the director of the USFA has an EMS focus to some degree. Awesome. Well, and, and, and I, again, I think good, right? That's a good thing. What was really intriguing, and I, I have a particular love for the movie Contact. Have you seen Contact? Uh, probably, I don't. Jodie Jody Foster's, anyway. The, the fabulous movie, one line everybody should know. The, the question is, 
what is the first rule of government contracting? And the answer is why build two? Why, why build one when you can have two or twice the price? Right. So what why build one when you have two or twice the price? And and so did you say it's an awful movie and yet you watch it every time? Uh, is that the one with a weird spaceship and they go in and they the aliens like slap their fingers up against the glass wall? No. No, that I, I know that's which one you're talking about. That's not that. Well, I we'll have to look that one up. That, that's this terrible non sequitur. Get back on track there. Okay. So, so this was interesting because the, the conversation with USFA, one of the things we discussed was when we're talking about folks with special health needs, right? And ventilators came up in conversation. And so they said, wouldn't it be awesome if there was a way for fire and EMS professionals and police, sheriffs, et cetera, depending on where you are, to know that if there's a power outage, who you need to go engage, who you need to check in on because the power went out, they're on a vent. And so you need to make sure that they're okay. And you'd have a list of who those people are. That came from USFA. And I said, but there is such a thing. Yes. And it sits in Asper, right? And so if you've got these, and, and the folks that I was talking to have been in the government for a long time. So cross communication about how, it, how we're doing things right in one place versus another, right? The academy isn't great about this. Right, the academy's kind of horrible about this. The Which academy, are you talking in general? Academia, in general. Oh, okay. Right? I mean, every university for themselves, right? But but people go to conferences and they pitch their ideas, and they and you know if, if you've had a pa- a published paper in whatever you know maybe you get picked to, to to present. In our again, I don't know what to call it. If you don't want to call it an industry, what am I calling this? Our space, our ecosystem. So we we have a. We have a challenge of the same people talk a lot, yep. uh, right? The, the same people tend to talk about similar things a lot. <laughs> and then you have identified very eloquently that there are whole spaces that are emerging yet never get presented. And so the awesomeness that's happening in the Pacific Northwest and comparable awesomeness having in the Southeastern U as the Deep South may never hear about one another. And so we end up replicating and keep ourselves from advancing without, I, I dare say, if I'm going to pat Jeff Frankel on the back for this, because it's his idea to do this forum. So good on you, buddy. Uh, is without forums like this, and thank goodness for social media, words rarely spoken, right? We have the ability to communicate from expertise out of your area in Philadelphia and have it reach the world. And, and, what do we do to ensure that the range of competencies not only keep us, we don't, we won't want to skim across the top, right? We also want to make sure that each community knows how to find its people. And without infrastructure to do that, how are we doing that? Mind you, we've been in an ecosystem, if not an industry, for 50 something years now. Right. So look, there's a couple of ways. You get to stop saying you're new, right? I mean, it's not new anymore. <laughs> There's a couple things we need to do, right? Um, first of all, and this is a very controversial statement, but the United States Fire Administration is the fire administration. Where's the United States Paramedical Administration? The Office of EMS at NHTSA? Yeah, but that's under the Department of Transportation and they don't have, they are, 
limited in their scope and authority. You know, I made a point on that a couple of weeks ago that I, I hope we, we can dig into it now if you'd like. I'm happy to go longer today. But I I think the more I, I, I said this during the FICOMS meeting, the, the interagency right. communication thing, right, that the more I think about where HHS is going at the federal level, the more I think if EMS were in that line, it would be a fish out of water. It wouldn't fit. DOT well, is exactly suggesting that where it needs security, to go, what, you know, but the Department of Transportation is where it ended up because that's where the money came from to write the original curriculum. Sure. So the other thing we need to get those ideas and those concepts out, we have one peer-reviewed journal currently that primarily focuses on clinical work, yep. uh, pre-hospital emergency care. Uh, there is in the works, a new journal called the International Journal of Paramedicine that uh, will be addressing the non-clinical stuff as a primary focus, uh, as well does as- that mean, Does that mean social determinants? Does that mean- uh, It means all of that. All okay. the things we just talked about uh, are issues- Yes, Jeff. We, we know that Jeff is peer reviewed <laughs> But 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 I don't I don't think Jens is quite as nerdy as the pure academic. I mean, you let me in, man. Here well, journal, don't let me. In. You know, the academic rigor of various journals can be debated. Um, I don't remember, and it's been a while. I mean, I can argue that I don't remember anybody looking at my stuff when I submitted it. For, so, better and, for better and worse, GEMS has a readership of more than 12 people. So when it compares to most academic journals, you are, you're rocking, man. But, but what my point being that we need to have a, a vehicle for those communications. Yes. So journals, if you're going to move to be in a profession, you need to have research. You need to develop an esoteric body of knowledge that's supported by conversations and dialogue that we critically look at the ideas of what it is that we do and why we do it. That's how we move this stuff forward. Well, so, so again, let me, let me push on that a little bit because one of the challenges that I have, and I have this in a non-commercial sense, in, a, in an academic sense, is I, I have been seeing more and more uh, art, uh, academic research data-oriented conversations where the data, for example, are being provided by this company or that company, <laughs> right? I, I, Based I on think their software, their EPCR software. Right, and 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 I, I, I find myself worrying because of some of the points you made earlier about perhaps the lack of understanding on how to get away from bias, right? That if you have a million charts coming out of one software system, you have a sample size of one, <laughs> right? Now you have some breadth so you can make some statistical statements, but have we adopted sufficient understanding to say, for example, let's say you're an agency that uses ESO and an agency that uses image trend and an agency that uses Zol, <laughs> right? Is there something about your agency and your practice and your region and whatever that drew you toward that system, right? 
academically speaking, statistically speaking, that could be a confounding error, right? Sure. You need to accommodate for that. And now, yeah, theoretically, Nemesis crosses all. It does, but Nemesis, if Nemesis is providing the data, but more and more we're seeing a, we're seeing an alignment of, you know, again, where companies are hiring researchers. Um, and again, I'm not, not going to name any specifics here, but there are, your point about the need for research is critical. And, yeah. and yet there are people, I mean, I'll, I'll mention Brooke. If I say Brooke, you know who I'm talking about, right? Oh, and, I do. Right. But, but, <laughs> but across this industry, people do. It's a very dangerous place for an industry with a national and international scope to have our equivalent of, of a Michael Jordan, right? You shouldn't be able to have a, a first name basis where, where one name denotes a researcher because that means we don't have enough of them. Right. I mean, look, that's my point exactly. Right. Yeah. When you start talking about, and this is another aside, down the EPCR line, a lot of the stuff that was originally driving electronic patient care reporting was demographic and billing data. Right. And the ability to have a high quality transfer of clinical and important medical knowledge via a narrative, which was how it was done in the past, has been by and large lost, which is a problem. It makes it harder to extract data from a narrative. So you, you make a, a narrative generated based on the pick list. And I can go down this whole rabbit hole about how we do patient care reporting and what the data points are and what we choose to include and not include. It, it, so far, in my opinion, it's not very well crafted for transmitting the important medical data. Whole well, other story, right? But, but it actually, well, let's let's not go away from that too fast because I, I did want to make sure in the time that we have, we talk about this concept of rotational training. And I think- well, Explain what you mean by that. I will, less. So I don't have a better word for this, but the simple fact is people come and go from agencies a lot, right? And and I, as a guy who engages in deployments, I have a, for technology, but it wouldn't matter if it was technology or if it was, you know, laryngoscopes, it, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> We have an industry, we have a, a practice, a standardized practice around, I'm going to catch me on the industry thing all the time now, by the way, make my life difficult here. Uh, I've lost a word. So we, we would talk about train the trainer models. And, and I think that's, so now you know exactly what I'm talking about. I had an experience as a company where we did a train the trainer and then the trainer left. And and nobody else was there, right? Now, for, forgetting the fact of like this person left to another agency, we're in the age of COVID, right? People get hurt on the job, right? There's all sorts of many reasons, but, but it's a really serious problem that organizations ask companies to come in and do a training when you stand up the person, the, 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 whatever it is you're doing, right? You deployed in a region, you have a new technology, you have a new tool, you have a new this. They've done that over and right. over and over. But, but whereas actually I think there are, when it comes to clinical skills, and I think the fire service is really good at this, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think every so often you do refreshers on things, right? But when it comes to the stuff that we do every day, like EPCR work, right? Not only is there oftentimes very little understanding about the guts and the why and all that, and, and I'm working on that separately from this as to help people explain the purposes and the value and all that stuff, but people train each other, right? And so you can find out that 
that I mean, there are still jurisdictions that are putting five and ten year software contracts in place, which is just insanity to a tech guy. I mean, you know, but but how do we train the next folks when people come and go and people learn from each other, which may mean they learn bad habits. And as an industry that deals with this every day, we still don't have best practices that I've found. And I've asked this question of many people except you on record. So you're going to solve my problem today. <laughs> is what is the one best of the things you have to recognize? What you're pointing out is what leads to uh, what's called normalization of deviance. Okay. Uh, I'm, a, where, I'm a normal deviant. Is that weird? It has to do with, and, and you know, you can Google it. it. It has to do with why the Challenger happened and why the Columbia happened. They're the two areas of normalization of deviance that led to enormous public tragedy and loss of life. Uh, but it's a concept that is created by what you're talking about. The sort of whisper down the lane changes that happen when I train you, you train John, John trains Sally. They don't think you know what you're talking about. So they're going to add their own little twist to it. It's a game of telephone. <laughs> Say again? Game of telephone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. Normalization of deviance. Big issue. We don't address it. Uh, and look, we don't recognize it. And some of the stuff that we've been talking about can be mitigated by well-educated players in the field. Well, and, and I think help. Yeah, that's why that's why I wanted to make sure we brought this up because and I'm glad you pointed this out and I hope that Jeff can confirm that the screen is being shared uh, and, and you're able to see it because to me, as a technologist, there are few risks greater to this industry, profession, ecosystem than this problem. Discipline. Right? Discipline. Good one. There are... I, I often refer kind of, kind of in, uh, in, in passing, I guess, or in writing and rhetoric to mobile medicine seat at the healthcare table of tomorrow, right? This industry deserves and must be a part of that conversation. And it's being overlooked chronically. It was overlooked at two healthcare conferences in the last two weeks, the HIMSS conference and the Vive conference, which is a combination of the health conference and the, uh, uh, College of Health Information Management Executives, which did this event, and there were only two people that I heard of at the entire conference who even mentioned out-of-hospital care, and that was how they referred to it as the context of opioids, right? So, again, look, we, we talk about degrees, and even, even some of the people that are against requiring degrees will admit having one is how you get a seat at the table. Having one is how you get some parity and recognition. And, I'm, and I'm, okay with, yeah, I'm okay with that. What I have so let me finish because there's another pathway. Go ahead. And that is being there, going, showing up, being a person that's in the room. Whenever this, let's say NEMSAC, how many people actually know that yeah. NEMSAC, the National EMS Advisory Council, exists, who's on it, and what it is that they do? You mentioned FICOMs. NEMSAC make re makes recommendations as an advisory council to FICOMS. FICOMS is made up of anybody in the federal government that has a bite at the EMS apple. Department of Defense, Department of Transportation, Health and Human Services, uh, who else? 
there's others. I don't, maybe education, there's like four or five. And I've been there and done that. And even, I don't even remember what all the players are. So we have a great degree of uh, colloquial ignorance. So when you're talking about how do you change things, first of all, you have to know what those things are. When you're looking at wicked problems or uh, messes as a guy named Russell Acoff used to talk about, you have, to, you have to have an understanding of the current environment within which the problems exist. And we don't have that right now. I don't think we have a good understanding of the broad environment because I think we frequently are limited in our perspectives. Sure. And now you cycle all the way back around to how do you get a broader perspective? Well, maybe you have to know things about sociology, psychology, uh, economics, uh, you know, ethics and, and business to, to understand more about what's going on in our environment. You know, we have a broken, uh, you know, when you start talking industry, we have the people that are public safety, and I don't like that term, and I'm going to say this, we need to stop saying that EMS lives at the intersection of public safety, healthcare, and public health. We need to define our own domain and our own environment. But, you know, you've got the people that are for-profit, non-municipal is what we call them here because they're not municipal ambulances. You have the various different ways of getting people to the hospital or from one place to another. And we don't do the same stuff. And it, it, it makes it really difficult. You have different interests. So when you get to wicked problems, you have a whole number of stakeholders that we never talk to. And many of them are in conflict, right? So the fire service, uh, the hospitals, the doctors, the payers, nobody ever talks about the payers. Who talks about the public? We need to have all these people involved. Normalization of deviance is easy when you have people that continue to practice without guidelines and standards and well, figure that they can, well, it's okay if we vary this much until the rocket blows up. Well, and, and that's why I, I'm so glad you mentioned it. And I was thrilled just now to be able to bring this article up from IAFF, right? And I think to the degree that we're going to talk about this on the patient care side, and maybe this will be a last point here. Uh, happy to do a part two, of course, with you or a part three, four, and five with you, my friend. Uh, but to the, I'll take you up on it. Uh, to the degree that I want to see if, if there's any questions, just can tell us. But the... It's interesting that we talk about fire science, right? That is that is a defined thing, but we talk about the art of medicine, right? And so to the degree that we've almost built into the, the vernacular itself, this idea that science, science has a process, science is repetitive, it must be replicable, right? It is rigid, art is not Right. Art it involves there's a there is a higher toler tolerance for error. There is the recognition that circumstances being what they are, are going to require you to do this or that, which you didn't necessarily plan for. Stochastics are real for uh, stochastics being the, the reality of randomness. Right. But at the same time, predictability too. stochastics has to do with predictability or lack thereof. Exactly. And so are we, again, preparing people? And 
how, and more importantly, I'm interested in why. And let this be the last point for the moment. But here, let me, let me see what he put in the chat here. Uh, suddenly, here we go. So, so to me, the 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 real question of what do we need to do to institutionalize knowledge on the mobile medicine side that allows people to say, I don't know what I don't know. So to the degree that you mentioned the drift, right? To me, this is, I'm a fairly intelligent person. I'm not, I'm the less smart of the, least smart of the three people on this particular call. That's um, but but I, I'm a fairly intelligent person. I've been doing this for a dozen years now and I still haven't figured it out. And I think, it, so I, I, I am kind of deferring to you if you have a reference of best practice, maybe we spark a conversation around that or spark a fire, no pun intended, where folks you know, sort of race to take care of this because it is a serious issue. And as the rest of the healthcare system shifts, right? new standards of interoperability. There is something speaking of fire, everyone should look up called fire, F-H-I-R, right? And I'll just bring this up on here on this, right? So which, which stands for fast healthcare interoperability resources. This is the new federally standardized mechanism for sharing information. Like how many people know about that? We have the, I, I had a, uh, I responded to an RFP around data sharing where someone said they wanted an HL7 structure. They said, well, which version of HL7? And their response was, there's more than one, question mark, right? And well, <laughs> if, if you don't know what you're asking for, how can you expect to do anything but get lied to, right? And so we need mechanisms by which to have knowledge transfer and have it be consistent. And other than using learning management systems, which are built into themselves, and there are conference after conference about clinical stuff, but, you know, NEMSI is all about Educators, right? What process does NEMSI have? You mentioned you worked with NEMSI. What process is there at the highest levels of the smartest people in this discipline to make sure that when person number two shows up after person number one and person three after person two, that there is a foundational knowledge that they have on how to put fingers on keyboards as much as it is to put tubes down throats when the fingers on keyboards happens more frequently then the tubes down throats. And that's the part I haven't solved. Oh, so let me say this. And this is kind of my crusade. Please, I've this talked is a great about question. it for years. And what I believe we need to do is follow the precepts of identifying and developing an understanding of our current environment by convening a group of stakeholders, the broadest group of stakeholders that we can, and have them dedicated first to learning design thinking and learning problem identification, root cause analysis of, of substantial issues so that we first know where we are. Yeah, we haven't got a map. We haven't got a compass. We haven't got a destination. And we don't even know what we're on. Are we on a ship or on a bus or are we walking? So all of but, these but why, things. Right? Why, are, why are we in that book? Why, again, there's a lot of really, really smart people in this, in this occupation, ecosystem, et cetera. How does one go 
50 years is two generations. So how do we go two generations and find oneself spinning in a vortex, right? Not because just up, not just up river, looking not the whole time. Because what? We've been inward looking the whole time. Okay. We already don't, we never knew what we were doing. All we knew is that we do, you got to understand the historical origins of what it is that we do. And we have evolved past the historical origins in practice, but not in preparation. So a paramedic was originally designed to only be the hands, eyes, ears of a physician, a physician extender into somebody's living room. Paramedic. Yeah. yeah. So you didn't have to know why. This had to be able to follow orders. And I, I was around during the days when you had to call medical command for online medical control, where you provided the details of your physical exam and interview to a physician, and then they decided what it was that you needed to do, and then you followed those orders. And in some places, it's still the case that you cannot initiate invasive therapy or pharmacological interventions without a physician's order sometimes referred to as a mother may I system. Nothing much has changed in the curriculum as to how to make a paramedic, but paramedic practice has changed where most often paramedics practice under uh, distributed medical command or indirect medical command based on protocol. So you do your physical exam, you do your uh, interview, you make a diagnosis, which people have been arguing about whether paramedics make diagnoses or not for a long time. But I would suggest that because we now collect data, make a decision and implement a, a response, initiating care, it's not, it's not deep in scope or, you know, it's a very narrow scope, uh, what we do, but we do it on our own. We're an unrecognized independent practitioner. You don't call a physician unless stuff's going sideways and a lot of people don't even bother. They just load and go, right? So all of this goes to suggest that as the practice has evolved, the preparation for that practice has not. And I would go with the ideas that what it is is education needed to fill those gaps about all those things we just talked about a while ago. Uh, bias, social determinants of health, real understanding how many paramedics really understand the quality of improvement practice that's been around, you know, since Deming and Duran in the uh, late 40s after World War II, how to, how to get things done. And, you know, one of the things about, uh, oh, I call it Six Sigma or call it, you know, continuous quality improvement, you know, you have to really recognize the fact that they were based on industrial processes. Yep. They were based on statistical process control. And when you throw people into that mix on both sides of the equation, it becomes much more complex. So now we're thrown all the way back to the idea of complexity and how do you ask the right questions? So well, first, you have to know where you are. We have to create the map. We have to illuminate the landscape. So far, we've been very myopic in our discussion and description of the landscape within which we work and live. And uh, we've been very contentious about who owns this, this plot of land and who's responsible and who gets the money and so on and so forth. We need to step away from that. We need to, in my opinion, 
we need to stop saying we need to think outside the box and, and recognize we don't even know what the box is. Yeah. There is no, no box. So, we start so from scratch, we don't stop what we're doing, but we build a new foundation because, uh, you know, the ACOF theory is you don't solve problems when they're this complex. You create an environment within which those so-called problems can exist. And we don't, we haven't come anywhere close to that. Because when you look at the conversations, the conversations are all insiders, all looking inward. We need to expand and, and do more like what, you know, the Greeks talked about. You know, we need geographers and, and philosophers, you know, as a representation of a broader interdisciplinary approach. There's a lot we can learn, for instance, from the hospitality industry. You know, well, uh, and, and so so let me let me throw one last question to you. Uh, Jeff will kill me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, uh, you said we can keep going. <laughs> well, uh, since you you mentioned quality control and then you mentioned people, and and when you put those two together, I think you end up at something you mentioned in in, in a bit of a shorthand that I'd like you to expound upon, which is design thinking, uh, because the the secret to ensuring that people go down the path you're intending them to go down is design, right? I remember when I was at uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, in the business school and I took, uh, you know, CMU's uh, human computer interface courses are kind of legendary. Uh, I took some design classes and I never understood at the time when we were talking about utility of an egg timer, and things like that, you know, ju just how, meaningful that conversation would be, whether it's ergonomics on bodies or it's human computer interface, how do you drive people to an objective you're trying to get them to. But the ability to make that process intuitive, repetitive, where you can learn it, where you can transmit it, where it's not gonna be the worst thing you've ever done. Um, why do you hone in on design thinking? What, what piece, what gap do you uh, just, just define design thinking anyway, as if it's especially if it's different from what I just said, but what gap do you think that would fit? Because that could end up being a missing link in this whole process as we look to what's next. Well, first you have to have a high level understanding of systems and the system of systems. So, you know, emergency medical service was originally conceived of as not EMS, but EMSS emergency medical services systems. <clears throat> and we don't understand our systems well at all. Uh, when you're talking about wicked problems, you talk about what you think is a problem and you work to solve it, maybe something that is going to make my world worse. Uh, so design thinking is, is based on a foundation of a, a good understanding of the systems and what's actually happening, right? What, what's, oh, what is oh, the yeah. environment? And then you make new stuff to come to uh, a product or an outcome that solves or serves the purposes that you're trying to serve, not exactly solving a problem. So what is it? We're trying to, we're trying to provide certain services to the public, primarily, historically, a ride to the hospital. Everything was based around a ride to the hospital, period. We were reimbursed. You could have a whole conversation about the idea yeah. of reimbursement. A terrible way of doing business, but and that we're a transportation provider, not a, uh, a healthcare service, right? So, 
we have to we have to know what it is that we should be doing from a broader perspective. What are the services that the public need? What are the services that the public wants? And we don't have the answer to that. Everything has been historically based on a ride to the hospital. And that's, you know, and the, the, the original concept was based on taking care of emergencies, which are a very small portion of the stuff that we do. Uh, and then you look in the historical documents, uh, you know, uh, what's it, uh, Galaxy Quest, right? We looked at the historical documents. It was only based on guys that fell off ladders or crashed cars. And then it was to make a paramedic, it was about intervening in cardiac arrest. You know, you go back and you look at Pantridge's article in Lancet, and I guess it was 1965 or 69, where he, he decided that he could save more lives of people having a heart attack by going out to their house rather than waiting for them to show up, you know, and that got picked up in, in, uh, in Florida and in Oregon or see, you know, in Seattle. But anyway, that's not what we do anymore. It's not just what we do. We don't just respond to car wrecks and heart attacks. Uh, we do a lot more. So I think we need to set aside all of our preconceived ideas about what it is that we do and look with a clean slate and talk to more of the people that have a stake in what it is that happens. And we don't currently do that. So. Well, that, I, I, I feel like that's an aspirational thought, a perfect one in which to, to pause this conversation. I say pause because with you and me, it's never gonna end. Uh, <laughs> so it's really just until the next installment. Um, but I, I do think that that's a very hopeful approach, right? We are seeing people, uh, yeah, we, are, we are seeing the topic come up in conversation. I've described convergence as my buzzword for 2021. Um, not 2022, we'll see what comes, right? Uh, but, but to the degree that, uh, you know, 2020, we're, we're not wasting a good pandemic, um, and it really collapsed a lot of the silos, right? So now we're starting to have a recognition in a lot of different places about the fact that this took a group effort. Uh, Let me throw so this out as a last thought because it's coming please. up. EMS on the Hill Day is coming up where you can engage with your uh, federal legislators. That's where it all happens. That's where they, they control the money. And they really don't know what we do. You can be active locally, politically, if you're not restricted like I used to be, uh, active in the state level. Emergency medical services is regulated by the states. And if we wanna get proper funding and proper recognition and uh, you know, designated as an essential service, so many other things, we have to engage politically. We have to engage with our legislators. So to get to where we can actually convene this conversation, uh, we need to have somebody who's willing to kick up the money to do it. And it's going to cost, you know, you have to have people willing to spend the money and people willing to invest the time. But the juice is worth the squeeze. Say again? The juice is worth the squeeze. Right, right. So, so that's the, the challenge I would throw out at people is A, you know, look up some of this stuff, look up wicked problems, look up this aspect of, of pedagogy and andragogy, look up the history of EMS, how many people know where we came from. And then you know, educate your legislators, the people who represent us to government and control the dollars. And maybe we can get some money to do things differently. Awesome. 
Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Your, your brilliance is, is unparalleled. Um, <laughs> I can tell you, Mike, I, 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 not only do I learn stuff from you every time we talk, but there are a few people who can throw out references the way you do. Uh, it's one thing to name drop uh, c- celebrities and, 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 and bold-faced names. It's another thing to, to name drop authors and journal articles. <laughs> so you have a unique talent, really. Uh, thank you to everybody who watched today. Uh, please do engage with us through social media channels. Um, we're, we're all quite findable. Uh, my email, uh, first name dot last name at beyondlucid.com. Uh, if you're, if you're, uh, prefer to do it that way, uh, with any topics for future discussions. Uh, and, uh, thank you to Jeff Frankel and the team at GEMS for allowing us to engage in yet another, uh, wide ranging and hopefully, hopefully productive and inspiring conversation. Thanks to everybody. Stay safe. Thanks so much.